Welcome to the Biz Power Hour podcast, where we discuss all things related to your business in sales, marketing, software, and strategy, bringing you the industry-leading experts with uncut and unedited advice, opinions, and actionable takeaways. Sit back and relax. This is the Biz Power Hour, and it begins now. This is Daniel Bosch, and I'd like to welcome you to this month's episode of the Business Power Hour. Today, we have a great topic and some amazing guests. For the secret to success is in the data, and we have Frank Cow from Digitopia Agency, and we have Brian Keith from Redbeard Consulting. Now, for the folks at home that maybe have not heard of your agency or your business, um, I'll start with you, Brian. Can you give a little bit of an overview of who you are and what your business does? My name is Brian Keith. My company is Redbeard Consulting, and I help conscious business owners fulfill their calling, which means I love to work with the people who are thinking about the impact on the next generation and the next five generations of what their work is. I work mostly with people who use Infusionsoft or Keep, and one of my specialties is helping people with serious analytic needs figure out the right dashboards for what they're working on. Great. Thank you. And Frank, uh, can you tell some people about your business and your agency? And you guys just went through a recent merger as well, I believe, right? Yeah, that's right, Daniel. So uh, the agency I had before was called Elevator. We'd been around about 14 years. And in August of last year, we completed a merger with another agency called Organic SEO, both of us here in the San Diego area. And uh, at the top of this month, on the 1st of February, we completed a rebrand and are now known as Digitopia. So as Digitopia, we're a digital agency focused heavily on the strategic aspects of digital. So we're taking our clients through the continuum of uh, marketing, sales, and service, aligning those departments across process, platform, and people. And that really drives everything we do. We do execute for our clients in terms of pay-per-click and email and, you know, you can fill in the, the blanks of any other three-letter acronym to, as far as our service menu. But for us, it's about driving strategic digital business decisions and how do we create a digital business mindset with our clients. And the kind of clients we work with are typically mid-market. We have some really large clients, but the, the bread and butter for us more times than not is a mid-market. So anywhere from 10 to 100 million in annual revenue and we're helping them you know, create that alignment and create that, that strategy that uh, allows them to be much more purposeful and efficient with what they're doing as an organization. Absolutely wonderful, great. So gentlemen, the topic today is the secret to success is in the data. And I feel like there's a lot of information out there and sometimes clients and marketing departments get lost in what they should track and what's important. And so, I mean, there's different categories of advertising metrics, marketing funnel metrics, and it goes all the way down. And so with departments and business owners kind of almost getting into a paralysis state of I, what do I track? What don't I track? What's important? Um, I, I'm going to start with you, Frank, and say from an advertising perspective, at least with the, the businesses and the agency that you run, um, what's important or what do you think people should be focusing on? So I did a talk recently on this very topic to a group of entrepreneurs and business owners. And the big takeaway that I tried to impart upon them was this idea of being trend focused on the big picture numbers. I find the number one mistake most businesses make is they look at marketing campaigns. They look at marketing results on a per campaign basis 
And in my opinion, if you're judging whether or not your overall marketing is successful by looking at individual campaigns, you're probably never going to be happy. Because as marketers, having done this a long time, we all know that an individual campaign is hit or miss. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The success rate on an individual campaign is actually not that high. But if we step back, if we zoom out a bit and look at the the totality, the body of work of what's happening in marketing, that really should tell the story and that really should be how we judge marketing. So I'm very much about encouraging people to be trend focused on the big picture numbers. And so that, may, that means we're looking at things like cost of customer acquisition. So is, is our COCA, cost of customer acquisition, is that number trending down, right? As opposed to, oh, for this particular campaign, our COCA was $3,500 and it's not supposed to exceed $2,500. And, and instead of looking at that and freaking out that we're way out of whack, what's the trend? Because How long in the future do you look? What's that? How long in the future do you look when you're looking at what kind of trends matter and how long on that trend? Do you look like what's going to happen in the next year or are you looking at over five years, we're trying to get our COCA down and aim to this or for any other metric? So a couple of uh, ways to answer that. One, we define COCA up front of what an ideal COCA would be for that client. And so we do what we call basic business math. And I find that most organizations have not done this basic business math, which is just doing, taking a few simple numbers. What is the lifetime revenue on this average kind of client you're going after? What is your average margin on that kind of client? Multiply those out and you get your average lifetime revenue. And then this question becomes of that lifetime revenue, how much of that are you willing to carve out towards acquisition to where you'd be absolutely happy every day of the week writing that check for acquiring that average customer. And so that COCA number is what we use as a, an initial benchmark of what we're aiming for. And then as far as like future looking, for me, the trend is about like what's been happening. So, you know, over the past, however many months we've been working together, where is it going? You know, is it trending up or is it trending down? And that's really the number one thing that I would encourage uh, clients and business owners to do is look at the trend of what's happening. Because if we get caught up in what's happening on a per campaign basis, uh, it's just, you know, it's a lot like, let's say our goal was to, let's use a, a personal example. Let's say, for example, we're out of shape. We haven't seen a gym in years. And let's say our goal was to get sexy, right? Like we're going to get sexy and, and that's our goal. We, we want to do it. Now, if we sign up for a gym and in the first month, we go a few times a week. Second month, we go once a week. And then the third month, the, the gym is high-fiving because they know they're making money because you never show up. Well, if at the end of that three months, if, if our position was that I don't look sexy and so that gym sucks, like that would just kind of be ridiculous, right? But this is what we do sometimes as business owners is we, we, look, at, we look at our initiatives in these really small windows and make these sweeping judgments that that doesn't work. Instead of realizing that building anything great, having great marketing, it's on a scale of years, not, not days. How do you convince uh, business owners of that? Because, yeah, the, looking at something over the course of years when they want to get results now, or this month's cash flow is dangerously low, what's the conversation you have to say, hey, this data, you need to look at this data and the story this data is telling for a three-year time period, not a three-week time period? Yeah, so it's interesting you say, what do I tell business owners? So there's a caveat to this. I think that when you're selling professional services, you have to know 
the outcome that you bring and who that's matched up to. So uh, I typically try to stay away from selling to business owners because uh, if, if we're selling to a business owner, for us, that means the company is probably small, that there mm-hmm. isn't a marketing team or a sales team involved in driving growth for their area. And so if I'm working with a business owner, and we have some clients that are business owners and, and you know, the clients we do have that are in that area are wonderful, but by and large, it generally isn't a good fit for us because business owners tend to make decisions emotionally, right? They're the ones who will look at a campaign and you know, say, hey, in this campaign, we overspent, we didn't get any leads, we didn't get any customers, and they're the ones who will like pull the plug on something over a campaign period of three months. So I tend not to uh, personally uh, like selling what we do to business owners because we're, we're about going in and creating you know, organizational change and, and essentially creating a growth team, but uh, it, that's not built overnight. So for business owners, I think it's incumbent upon us as marketing agencies, if that's who we're going to sell to, we have to get really laser focused in on the activities that drive results today. I think that's a beautiful point. Um, I was doing a presentation last week in Arizona to an audience of agency owners. And I said, one of the core things that you need to have your clients sign off on in their belief with working with you is that marketing is like saving for retirement. You have to continue to invest in it. And over time you will build wealth. But if your strategy is shotgun approach that you're going to buy a lottery ticket every month and you're going to think that you're going to hit it big and never have to put in any more work, then it doesn't work that way. And so if you as an agency owner uh, or a marketing business feels like, hey, this is a long-term play and your client is not on board with you, you're going you're gonna to have an issue because they're going to be looking at one metric and you're all driving for the long-term play. So I think that's a, that's a great point. So we've got, you know, we mentioned advertising and then we were kind of transitioned over to marketing funnels. So, I mean, there is a difference before I get there though. I want to, I want to mention one thing, um, Frank, that you brought up. So anyone that's listening that says, okay, well, um, Coca is, is the trend of that going down or up good or bad. Can we address that real quick? Because obviously trending down in cost would be good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if cost increases, that's bad as well. Is that correct? I think it's understanding and doing that basic business math and asking in going through the discovery with your client to find out what's acceptable. And if, you know, for every marketing agency on here, if you're not doing this basic business math with your clients, then the programs you're designing are designed based on what feels good, not designed to aim for a profitable number. Like if you don't start with acquisition and aim everything around that, that, you know, drives when you boil it all down, that'll drive cost per clicks. That'll drive your maximum CPCs you can afford. And so you you need to make decisions based on that number. So I think if if doing that number, that math up front uh, will will get the client's buy-in that yes, I can live with that number. So that's the place we start. But yes, if it does trend higher, that's okay too, as long as the trend is coming down, right? Like if it starts higher, that's fine. It probably will start higher. And that's the expectation we try to set with our clients. And I would recommend any agency sets if you're going to go down this path of being acquisition uh, budget focused, set the expectation. It is going to come in higher 
in the beginning. It's a lot like, you know, I used the gym example earlier, but one of the charts that we show people is the ROI of marketing. And in the ROI of marketing, you know, on the, the bottom axis, we have time over months. And then on the Y axis, we have effort. So effort is human capital, it's resources and it's money. Okay. So if you have really high effort in marketing, like really high and it's consistent, even with that, your ROI starts very negative. Always. It starts very negative and it'll trend up over time. And then there's this triangle shaped piece of data on that chart that is all ROI negative. And the thing that we point out to our clients is if you're not willing to go through that pain there, you'll never get to the greatness up here in the top right triangle. And so we, we do set the expectation that it's going to start out high, but are we trending in the right direction? And let's be trend focused. So I think it's just about setting expectations and having business conversations with people, not marketing conversations with people. Now, speaking, <laughs> Brian, did you want to say something? I like to use the word plausibility in this conversation where I, and I work mostly with smaller businesses uh, under 5 million. And I say, is this math we've just put up there, the same math you're talking about, Frank, is it plausible that this could be true? Is that, given what you know, if that, if all these number of assumptions are reasonable that we can reach this goal over here, can you actually fulfill that level over the course of the next year or two years? And then as we look at how are you going to acquire customers, do they fit into a sort of a plausible scenario? You know, would you believe this if someone told you this is what they did in the last year? That's how I just assess the gut feel of, is your, is your basic business math, is that, does that feel reasonable? Yeah, and so I think, I think an important thing that as we're transitioning over to talking about marketing and talking about marketing investment um, is really understanding what kind of the metrics that we should be tracking are. And this, I don't want to side rail us from our topic today, but I do want to address one thing. I think there's a lot of shiny object syndrome out there where people will say, I need to build a marketing campaign for this or this, but they're failing to look at the big picture. So HubSpot uses the flywheel approach, which is micro funnels built into like a, a you know, a flywheel design or a carousel design. Um, Infusionsoft and other agencies use the customer journey, like a, a life cycle marketing stage of you need to do this at that stage. So before we get too deep into marketing campaigns and metrics, I mean, Frank, you kind of alluded to that where it's like you're marketing as long as you're providing effort, it's going to drive results in the long term. Can we talk about that for one second? Because the, the campaigns that you plug into certain areas are going to continue to drive results or should, should they not? Yeah, that's one of the things that we'll tell people, especially if we have, it's usually a business owner who asks this, if, you know, do will you do this on performance or go at risk? And the reason we don't is because so much of the ROI comes, continues to produce even after we put our pencils down and, you know, we're done, our hands are done and say, we're done with the work, right? So much of that foundational stuff continues to work and generate ROI. So that's the other fallacy is that marketing campaigns are judged in the period in which the money is spent. It's, it's not, you know, a, a $50,000 investment in a campaign, especially digital where there's a lot of content involved in automation and foundational stuff that will continue to produce for potentially years. So to judge that campaign in, in the same exact time period in which the money is spent, just it isn't comparing the, the right apples to apples. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. 
No, you, you definitely are. And I think that's a, a good point. That's one of the things that I think a lot of people kind of miss because there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of, you know, great results from marketers and things like that. But I think people get focused on like microcosms of, hey, I'm going to look at my 90 days, but they're not looking at, hey, if you've invested in this, this is something that in the right time with the right automation sequence, this thing is going to continue to fire hopefully nurture and then convert and drive revenue all the way through every time someone enters into that, that piece of that funnel. Yeah. One of the things that we do, so we have five core philosophies that drive our digital business methodology. And one of them is hyper-specificity. So this principle says that our efforts should be hyper-specific on buyer personas and buyer persona situations and so if we develop a campaign, that campaign needs to be hyper-specific. And oh, by the way, we start with just one or very, or maybe two, maybe three, depending on the size of the organization, their budget. But the reason we have to start with one is that it needs our full attention to make sure that it's up and running, it's successful, that that team proves their value to the rest of the organization, to the executive team, so they can start to get acclimated to these philosophical mindset shifts that they need to make on how they view marketing. Additionally, if we look at the world today, the world today is so crowded and noisy and cluttered. I mean, just look at our own industry. You know, I, I could throw a rock outside my office and probably hit a couple of marketing agencies. Uh, it seems to be the thing you do if, you know, you've run out of options and you've got a laptop, right? Start a marketing agency. And, um, and, you know, and, and so what that means is that in that sea of noise, that as we have, it's incumbent upon us to figure out our specific audience that we're going to hone in on and the specific situation that we solve. That's, that's the same for our industry and our clients as well. They're battling all of this noise as well. It's a very crowded, noisy world we live in. So that's the other thing that we do. That's a core philosophy that drives us. And uh, we make that a massive part of our conversation when we're uh, having those conversations with potential clients. And if they don't buy into that and uh, they want to stay more generalized and scattered, it's, just, it's not going to work. It actually does not align with our methodology. We'll, we'll go to do our work and it just will actually like clash. It just won't work. And so our method, we're very, we're very much sticklers about our methodology. That's not to say that there's a cookie cutter approach, but it, there is a, a process and um, we, we believe in it. We believe it's what creates marketing greatness, but the philosophical points have to be, we have to be in alignment there. If we're not, it's not going to work. Brian, I'm going to need the actual, go for it, Daniel. No, no, go ahead. We need the actual data to go be in alignment with the philosophical stuff and to tracking whatever it is we agreed to go do. Uh, like in my case, my clients say, okay, well, are you willing to go do these particular marketing activities for however long it's going to take to get some kind of result? And then how are you tracking that? Because if you're not tracking, if you're actually doing what you said you were going to do. So we talked about editorial calendars, Daniel, a while ago. And is your editorial calendar actually designed to both deliver on these the high-level focus but then are you actually doing it? Do you have a feedback mechanism that tells you and your team, is this being done? Whether that's in Google Calendar or a spreadsheet or wherever, so you can accurately assess, besides having a good plan, did I actually carry out the plan so you can take proper correct, corrective measures and then 
collect that data about did you do the thing you said you would do with what are the results you're getting from that thing? If you're not doing the thing and then you're not seeing results, your customers aren't the problem. You're the problem because you didn't do the thing. So no wonder you're not getting the results you expected. Uh, I'm going to pose this question to both of you gentlemen. Brian, I'm going to start with you because obviously you two work in, um, in, in different sized markets, which is, I think is a, is a perfect blend and combination for this discussion. So uh, there's, there's customers out there that know they're getting sales, but they may not know exactly who to go after. I mean, some, some um, businesses have multiple avatars that they should be reaching out to or that they reach out to. So if, they, if someone comes to you, where do you start? Like what defines what, what audience that you're going to go after for them? Ask two questions. One is, who do you want to be working with? If you had your, your magic wand, who would you be working with over the next 12 months? And then I say, who has actually given you cash in the last 12 months? And then there's some amount of Venn diagram goodness where to some extent, ideally, the people you want to be working with are the people you are working with. But then there's some people who are either you're currently working with them, but for whatever reason, they're not part of your ideal world or they're part of your ideal world, but you're not working with them yet. And then that leads to the question of why are you still working with these people? Is it because you need the cash? Is it because they're friends of yours, whatever? And the people you want to work with, why aren't you working with them yet? Is it because you haven't called them or you don't have the right services for them or your team can't fulfill that, whatever. And we go from there to figure out why aren't you moving into that area you want to be in. Frank, uh, you guys serve obviously a different market. So when you have a client that comes to you, have they figured out who they're going after? Or do you find that sometimes they're going after the wrong audience or the wrong ideal demographic for a specific campaign? Yeah, most of our clients already have a number of buyer personas. They, they know they know them well. Uh, the, you know, they've been in business long enough to know uh, a lot of times they've even developed them very much like we would develop them. And in some ways, you know, we pick up a lot of inspiration when we see marketing departments are using different tools and different ways to look at buyer personas and we'll learn from our clients as well. So a lot of our clients have that already defined. The thing we're doing is we're helping them prioritize those to figure out where is the best opportunity based on what competition's doing, based on their skill sets and strengths. Uh, and see where there's uh, something we can grab onto to get some quick wins, get some traction in that uh, funnel, so to speak. And um, that prioritization is, is really one of the biggest things that we help them do. And then the other thing that we do, which most, again, most people haven't done, is then we'll do the business math on that buyer persona based on what they're most likely to sell to that buyer persona to solve their focus pain point. You know, getting back to that hyper-specificity thing, like what's the pain point that we're going to hone in on and solve for this buyer persona and then do that business math. That's where we'll then help them take it a step further and then plug that into a methodology that uh, is usually much more strategic than they've ever operated. And so I'll pose the question to both of you gentlemen for buyer personas. Do you find that different personas have different buying patterns and different profitability for businesses? Very much so. Can I share a spreadsheet? Yeah, go for it. That's about all I ever do is share spreadsheets. Uh, let me go blow this up so it's easy for folks to see on smaller computers. So uh, my marketing is largely for my company around specific groups that people are in uh, as opposed to persona-based. Like the persona is they're part of this particular group, whether it's this group on Facebook or this person's customers, that kind of thing. So I look at what is the size of that group. So let's say group A I'm marketing to has 1,000 people and group B has 100 people. 
uh, something like this. Maybe group C is tiny. And then I look at, uh, for each person in this group that I sell, whatever I'm selling to that group, uh, what is the value of that? And so maybe we have numbers that are like something like this. Uh, and then I say, okay, so and what's the value if I sell to a lot of those people? If I can actually penetrate 10% of the market, what would that look like? If I actually won big, the whole plausible thing, if I could plausibly reach 10% of those people, and then I say, okay, well, maybe that, then that would tell me the expected value of that. And from here, I can prioritize. And I look at this both for the past 12 months, two years, and then I look at the next month, 12 months to two years, and say, what is this going to look like in the future to tell me, is it realistic? And I, basically, if I got everything I wanted from this particular market, if I won big, would that be satisfying as compared to winning big somewhere else? And that's how I decide which groups to focus on. Is it a big enough pool of people to really go after? And do I have a service that if I won with who I offered the service to in that group, I would get a good payoff from putting energy into that group? And Frank, for you, for your buyer personas, uh, do clients come to you with their buyer persona that they want you to focus on? Or do you, do, in your business, do you look at them to determine which one's going to have the highest margin or, or opportunity for you to make a difference for them? Yeah, like I mentioned, they, our clients typically know their buyer personas fairly well. It's becoming more and more commonplace for us to engage with prospective clients and they'll give us a buyer persona, buyer persona sheet with a buyer's journey and they'll give us a lot of that having already been done. Uh, again, for us, we're really trying to figure out uh, the, the sales opportunity and the, the differentiation opportunity in the marketplace. That really is, to me, for us, it's, it's less about prioritization of marketplace potential and mm -hmm. more so about differentiation, differentiation potential. Does that make sense? So yeah. if, if we pick one that's like big market opportunity, but there are a lot of competitors out there saying the same thing, our marketing will, will have a harder time connecting and engaging and getting momentum. But if we help them understand that this particular area of the market is kind of blue ocean, it's, it's wide open, and it's actually where you excel. It's where you provide the most value, even though it may not be the biggest um, dollar opportunity, we'll, we'll recommend going there first. Reason being is because all things being equal, especially with these companies that are already established, they're going to continue to generate about the same amount of leads, about the same amount of opportunities, and about the same number of clients as they always do. Our opportunity is to come in and do the thing that's going to be uncommon compared to what is generally kind of already happening. Mm, so if, okay. we can find, if we can find that differentiation opportunity, that, then we're going to get much more momentum with the, the kind of things that we're producing and putting out. So where, where would you find that? Do you look, that, look to that in data? Are there metrics or tools that help you to extract that information? Where do you start? And Brian, this can go to you too, because at the end of the day, you're trying to identify the opportunity. So you've got to dig into the data somewhere. Yeah, for us, you know, we're, we're looking at a lot of ex existing data they already have in the organization. That's the nice thing about an existing organization that's mid-size. They have a lot of this data in their walls already. 
So we're, we're going through their existing data. We're also doing uh, a bit of online research, whether that's, you know, search stuff that's very typical digital marketing-esque, or we're just doing competitive analysis and looking at the different competitors in the marketplace. Uh, that and then interviews and conversations with uh, sales and service and executive team. And, and so it's kind of a combination of all those things. But with established companies, and, you know, this, I found this to be true even back when we did branding work. We could do real fancy marketplace research and focus groups and we could do all that stuff. But I found more times than not, especially for existing brands with existing offerings, for new, brand new, the, there's marketplace research really helps. But for existing brands, existing offerings, existing client bases, the data is there. It's in there. Is Our job as experts is to figure out how to pull it out and, and find the nugget that's already there and help them position that to the world in a way that's not being done. And so that's kind of our approach because we are dealing with it, it, organizations that already have an engine kind of running. Are there any key things that you look for in numbers for any specific things? And I know there's probably an unlimited amount of things that you guys probably look at for different scenarios, but do you find yourselves looking at a few different things every time when you walk in to, to pull that data? Yeah, we're looking at um, previous revenues compared to in that area compared to overall revenues. We're looking at uh, their close rates. So I want to understand, you know, how many of those opportunities, how many of those leads does it take to create opportunities? How many of the opportunities does it take to create a customer? So I want to look at their, their conversion rates along that, that path. And uh, those can be very telling as to, you know, how I use the word momentum and I, that's a big word for us. It's a really important word for us because I find, especially as agencies, if we, if we can't create momentum, we're going to lose trust and faith by the people that hire us, which is why we, we tend to focus on the marketplace opportunity that has the most momentum potential as opposed to the biggest dollar potential. Because we can get to the, 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 the bigger opportunity, the dollar opportunities, but if we don't create momentum, we're, we're not going to cement that relationship and we're going to lose that trust quickly. That's a great point. On the smaller business side, I look at an entirely different set of metrics, which is who are you competing with? How big are they? Why do you think you're going to be able to beat them? And if you're not competing with people in the particular offering, why is no one else already there? And how can you establish a long-term defensible position that no one else will be able to just come and take from you easily when someone smarter than you with more money than you shows up? Because I say, hey, there's always someone smarter with more money than you. So what's your long-term defensible position going to be? And usually that comes down to relationships of some kind or some kind of affinity group where where can you build a relationship that is going to be hard for someone to go and take from you? Now, um, and that's a good point. Frank, you had mentioned sales, and that was my next topic that I wanted to bring up. So when we're looking at sales numbers, uh, and marketing is directly tied to sales, and sometimes it's indirectly because it's over a, a period of time, right? Are there key things that you all are looking at? I know you already kind of talked about a couple of them, like conversion, how many leads does it take? So if let's dive into that for a second, because I feel like that was a lot of valuable information that you had mentioned and some, some people may have lost it right in there in the midst of the discussion for marketing. So for sales metrics and numbers, what are really important to you that's going to show, for example, either as you had said, momentum for that company moving 
or that they're doing a really good job. And that's figuratively speaking here. So are there some key things that you're looking for? Yeah, we're obviously, we're trying to create opportunity. I mean, marketing's job is to create a sales conversation. Uh, And so that cost per conversation or cost per appointment or cost per opportunity, however that organization wants to call it, that's really uh, the driving number in marketing, right? And then ultimately we can extrapolate out like once sales is done with it, what's the cost of acquisition, right? But the marketing's role is up to the point of the opportunity or that sales conversation. So we want to track that through and understand how that's trending. Uh, and then from there, we want to be good marketing partners and understand what's happening in sales. So that way, if you know a, a percentage of our conversations we're driving don't turn into customers or the accepted rate is really low, we want to understand why. So there's the idea of sales accepted lead, right? So marketing creates marketing qualified leads and then you know, sales can create sales qualified leads, but in between there's a sales accepted lead. So that MQL to SAL rate, uh, we want to understand, you know, is there a high percentage being rejected? Because the moment they look at the record, you know, if the sales team says, oh, that's clearly not you know, it doesn't, it clearly doesn't fit the profile of the kind of person I would even think about calling on, then that's, that shows that we have a disconnect. And so that relationship between marketing and sales needs to be discussed up front. It needs to be identified up front. And some organizations, we we recommend doing this, is creating a service level agreement, which is marketing promises to generate X number of MQLs each month. uh, And an MQL is defined as this criteria. And sales promises to follow up with MQLs within X amount of days and turn X percentage into opportunity conversations. So that agreement is really critical to establish upfront between marketing and sales. So that's, that's an important metric in there, the MQL to SAL, and then you know how many are turning into SQLs and opportunities. So right in there, there's some, right in the middle is some really important numbers to start look at and looking at the trends there. And that'll tell us a whole lot about you know, whether we're driving the right kind of engagement or not. Now, do you also look at time to purchase or time for conversion when you're building out your metrics and you're building out your, your marketing strategy for that specific client? Uh, not on, not for what we're doing on our side. Uh, some of our clients just, they just have long sales cycles and they understand that's the name of the ball game. It could be six months, 12 months, 18 months. So we're not looking at that there. Uh, but we are looking at, you know, time from uh, initial engagement to opportunity conversation. You know, that is something that on the marketing side, we, we can try to accelerate, especially for leads that aren't ready now leads. They're more of uh, what we would call like content MQLs versus like ready now MQLs. You know, they meet the criteria and they want to talk versus they meet the criteria, but they've just been perusing your content and whatnot. So accelerating that is something that we're always striving for. So we can shorten that cycle because the more conversations we can create, obviously then, you know, marketing department becomes the hero in that situation. Yeah. Brian, I'm going to post this to you because at any stage of any size of business, you're going to have the qualified leads. You're going to have qualified leads that are ready to buy right away. And then you have qualified leads that are going to take some time, right? And so that moves over into a nurture stage where you have to follow up, provide, like as Frank had uh, mentioned, is, you know, provide content, provide other things to stay relevant for them. 
So are there things that you look for that are indicators in that nurture stage that says, hey, this person may be ready for a conversation. We should maybe start to change the conversation in the email or in the automation. So great metrics for that are things like how many lead magnets or emails from you have they clicked on in a given time period? If someone's clicked on one email in the last six months versus every email you send them, that's a pretty good indication. And then if you have some kind of links or content that are more just purely educational versus some that are much more, some people would call it more like middle of funnel or bottom of funnel or just more sales oriented. Like if I have a link that says schedule a 20 minute call with me and then you click that link and we have, I mean, actually complete a phone call, a sales call, even if you don't buy, that means you're way higher up on the prospect list than someone who is reading every ebook and PDF that gets put out, but never clicks the link, even though they see the opportunity every time to go click something. So knowing that kind of thing and getting a sense of, of all the leads you have in your system, how active are they really? And then I've helped some clients to create health scores where they look at uh, how many emails are they clicking on? What percentage of emails are they clicking on? Uh, maybe how often or how long ago do they have their last phone call with you? Whether it's, I mean, there's all kinds of automation behind that. But if we know that it's been four months since the last time you got on the phone and you're only clicking on 10% of the emails you get, then yeah, maybe I shouldn't take you out my database, but I'm not going to go be reaching out to you more and I'm not going to be spending ad money on you. Whereas my ad money should probably go to the people who talked to me last week and they've been clicking on 80% of my emails. And they also, because they filled out a survey, I know they happen to be my ideal price point. And combining those things to have some kind of health score, because if you have, if you're looking at a thousand leads and you have no unified health score, you're sort of saying, well, I mean, maybe I should call Bob. I don't know. And the ideal system will show you who to call right when you should call them. And that's where the health score idea comes in. That's, that's good. In our agency, one of the things that we do is we try to educate our customers about classifying the content that they have. So if you've got a series of emails or you've got videos out there, whatever your content is, if you've got it classified to say, hey, this is sales focused or this is a, a DIY or, or whatever that classification is to understand what kind of content they're consuming then gives you a great indicator of what they're interested in and then possibly is it time for them to have the sales department reach out to them or, or whatever next step in, the, in the, the strategy that you're going to play is? So I'll start with you, Brian, and then, Frank, I'm going to go down to you on that question. Do you do content classification? If so, do you track any of that as being an indicator of, hey, they should be reclassified either in your sales pipeline or for following up with a sales call or anything else? Sometimes I'm sure we should do it more. One of my clients, we classify based on their three main product lines, which is online classes, in-person classes, or manuals and other resources. And so we tag player and we can see something about how recently they're clicking it and then have the right kind of follow-up based on which product are they showing interest in most recently. And if you want to get fancy, you could say you could add up how many clicks per three product lines across all time to get, but then also have that, your historical data, then you could have your, how, what, what's in the last three months or the last six months? What are they clicking on? What are they downloading to say, well, this person, they joined us from manuals three years ago, but in the last six months, they're clicking on all these online classes things. Clearly we should send them more online classes, emails, or call them about, do you have someone to register? Gotcha. And Frank, do you guys do any kind of content classification? Do you find it relevant, not relevant? Yeah. So what we do is when we set up our initial marketing automation 
systems for our clients. We mostly use HubSpot, but we have clients that are on Marketo or Pardot. Uh, and we try to do that, what I'm about to tell you, we try to do that in those systems as much as possible, but uh, I'm, I'm a little biased, but they're not as capable of doing some of the, the way we, we set it up as we can in HubSpot. But generally we, we do uh, what's called a recent topic and so up front, what we identify with our clients is what are the topics for which they can claim differentiating expertise? And from there, we'll end up with just a handful. We don't suggest uh, very many because it's very difficult to support all of those potential topics because they each need content and uh, not just uh, one or two emails, but a, a length of time of nurturing. So once we identify those topics, then within each of the lead magnets, a hidden field will be what the recent topic identification is uh, from a general standpoint. So for us at our agency, one of the big topics is strategy, right? So it's a strategic conversation. We're talking strategy, 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 uh, or, or process is because we call it uh, process platform people. So if we identify them as process, that's the conversation track, then all the follow-up emails will just be a lens of strategy and process. And we'll just drive that message. If they convert it on that lead magnet, we don't tend to want to try to satisfy every potential marketing topic in the book. We want to focus on the topics for which we feel we're, we're above average in our expertise and the way we're able to talk about it, the unique thoughts we're able to bring to that conversation. So that way, when people hear it from us, they go, wow, I haven't heard it said that way, or you're explaining it in a way that makes it crystal clear. I, I love what you're saying. And so we, we, we prioritize those topics. And then what we do is when we set up the marketing automation, we have a, a pretty standard methodology for creating a foundation. So that way, any campaigns we build, they, it can tap into uh, a few core things like a welcome series, a nurturing series, and an extraction series. And once those are in place, all the other campaigns can just leverage those. And of course, as we get into additional topics, we'll have to spin up additional nurturing series based on those topics, but we have the framework in place that we can follow. Uh, and when that particular topic is done, then we would have some sort of segmentation series that says, uh, you know, tries to introduce them to another topic, so to speak. But we get, we get really specific on those topics, and it's very much that we don't want to try to address every potential topic under the sun. We want, we want those topics to be our differentiating points. You, got, you want to own those topics. Yeah, like I, I would rather uh, have sales conversations for people who say, we need a strategy. We need to get on the same page. We're not aligned in marketing and sales you know, we're doing a lot of stuff. It feels very shotgun, but there's no plan. Like that for me is a conversation that not to brag, but I'll win most of those over my competitors all day long because I'll go in and, and my team is all trained and built to think this way. We'll go in and we'll, we'll own that conversation. Whereas if somebody comes to us and says, um, I, I want my emails to have better open rates and click-through rates. I'm, I really have this email problem. Sure, my team can do that, but I'm going to like win some of those and I'm going to lose a lot of those. So I don't want a topic track on email marketing, if that makes sense. You know, yeah, I, I want sense. topic tracks. And that means, that means my lead magnets that, that I put out have to be related to those topic tracks. Like I don't want a, a lead magnet on email marketing if I can't own the email marketing conversation in a way that's differentiated. Like I want, I want to be able to, if I get a conversation for that, no, that 
my competitors are going to be like, oh shit, I got to go up against this guy to talk about strategy. Like I want my competitors to go like, okay, you know, they, they own that. Whereas if I go and talk about email marketing, then it's just like a tactical conversation that it's just kind of a lot of like conversation and speak that sounds like everyone else. And I would say that likely would be recommended same for your clients as well. So whatever they play in, the same thing to own a couple conversations or topics and completely invest in them so they can own them. And then that's going to be one of the the levers that you can pull from a marketing standpoint. Would you, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, exactly. It goes back to that uh, philosophical point I made earlier, one of the philosophies of our methodology is hyper-specificity. So we have to get really clear on the conversations we're having in the marketplace and they have to be differentiating opportunities because we live in a world where there's so much commoditization in every industry, you're not going to be great at everything. So what are the one, two, or three conversations where you can have cornerstone ideas and thoughts, not just, oh, let us tell you how to do email marketing better, but do you have a lens on email marketing that is a cornerstone thought? It's cornerstone to your brand that it, it creates a paradigm shift for the people who consume that content. That's cornerstone content, mm-hmm. not just let me tell you another trick about email marketing. You follow me? Right. So when yeah. I talk about strategy, I talk about it in ways that's cornerstone to our brand. And for the person who consumes that, they have a paradigm shift in how they think about strategy and digital compared to what everyone else is saying. So it's important to define those in that way. Where do you have an opportunity to have a cornerstone thought put out in front of your audience and have them go, wow, that that's, that's different than what I'm hearing. Okay. That's great. I appreciate that. So we're kind of coming to the top of the hour and we've covered a lot of topics. So Brian, I'm going to start with you and this is going to be somewhat of a difficult challenge. So I don't, I don't expect you to answer it in, in its entirety, but definitely dive about it if, you, if you're willing to indulge me, okay? I'm on it. So, yes. The only answer is yes. What would be if someone's going to build a dashboard? Now, the challenge is here. There's, there's business owners, there's CEOs, there's marketing departments, there's sales departments. Mm-hmm. They all deserve, rightfully so, their own metrics and dashboard that they should be tracking. But generally speaking, if someone's listening to this and they're saying, hey, I'd like to know some things that I need to go back and I need to talk to my team about, we need to start taking a look at these. Or if it's in the case of a smaller business or a business owner that says, I don't know where to start, what would be some of the things that you would suggest? And it could cover both realms of of individuals here or teams what would be the, some key indicators that they would want to build in some kind of dashboard or, or metrics that they should start to track? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I'm going to think out loud already as I do. So uh, one of the most important things would be uh, how many people do you have in a particular pipeline? Let's say, uh, well, I'll use some examples for myself. So much like Frank was saying, there's a few areas, right, that I try to dominate on. And then a lot of other things like how to use this tool. I don't touch much because that's not profitable. So let's say, for example, there's two areas, uh, and then really there's this third area. There's my impact framework, which is my cornerstone thing to use Frank's language. So let's say I have these three areas. Uh, I would say you need to know how many people are coming in over a given time period, and you need to know how that's changing over time. So you might want to have some kind of trend there. Uh, But then you need to know something like 
uh, what's your dollar value per lead? And then what's your forecast in cash? If you knew that for your major pipelines, if you're at the executive level, that might be enough. And then if you could also maybe look at historical data and say, hey, I see that the analytics thing, you know, our dollar per lead has crashed or it's gone, it's, it's gone way up or our overall new leads has gone down or gone way up. And really just looking at the forecast across all your different stuff, so you see, here's how much we're thinking we're gonna make and then say, okay, is that plausible? Can we actually fulfill that? Is that enough? If it's not, what can we do to change it? And 30 days is, I work with smaller companies. For some bigger companies, maybe it's more like six months or a year you're looking out if you have a longer sales cycle. But understanding, getting to the number of what is your forecast? Is that right? Do you need to change it? And thinking far enough out that you can change it, you actually can change that number. And, you know, a three-day forecast is probably useless for most people. Now, do you look at traffic sources as well? Because the one thing that you had shared is you had said the, you showed the leads. Do yeah. you also look at, and I know you're generalizing because we can't drill down really granular, mm-hmm. but do you also look at traffic sources for the amount of traffic that's coming in? Yeah, so traffic sources, uh, and could you have traffic sources, let's say Facebook ads, then you have which uh, entry point did they see, and then which campaign are they going into from that entry point? And you might have all those splitting out, so you might be able to say, uh, Facebook leads for people who downloaded this lead magnet, they have this particular cash forecast, this particular expected dollar value from this one campaign they're in, whereas people from a Facebook ad with this other lead magnet go into this other campaign have a different one. And then you can go properly assess how much are you spending on each of those Facebook leads and make sure you're not wasting money on people. And then depending on the level you're looking at, if you're going a little bit deeper, I look at where is someone at in your overall cycle and what kind of ads should they be seeing there? Because you can automatically turn ads on and off in Facebook. So if someone is uh, they take a survey and you were their new lead, you were still exploring who they were. They took a survey and they answered you about their annual revenue. And now, you know, definitely not a prospect, at least for your primary service. Great. So turn off the ads for the primary service, turn on the ads for your low dollar thing or your affiliate offers to go monetize that somehow, but stop pitching them on your high end. They can't possibly afford. Gotcha. And Frank, I'm going to turn to you. So same question. I know it's an impossible way to answer it fully, but what would be key things that you would say that uh, at anyone at any level should be looking at? So I'll, I'll look at this from like uh, the highest level that, that we could look at this. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about this in terms of something I'm building right now for our agency that I also hope eventually cascades to our clients to influence their thinking. And so I look at, you know, when I look at how to manage the agency and look at what's working, what's not working, I think of it as a flow. Uh, And so what I mean by flow is I want to look at the different areas of the business, such as marketing, sales, operations, admin, finance, and so on. I want to look at that in terms of literally how it flows from one to the other. So that means the lineup of marketing to sales, to operations, to admin, to finance, uh, to R&D, back up to me, the CEO, and then continuing that loop. And what I want to do is identify the one single KPI that matters most in each of those areas, not the 10, but what's the one critical one. And then here's where um, I think most people go wrong is they, they say the KPI is important and people end up doing a lot of different things towards that KPI. And if they hit them or not, they can't point to exactly why they didn't hit it. It's just the sum of all of these things didn't work out. So the next thing to identify below that 
are the, what I call the CBAs, the critical business activities. So if in marketing, for example, the number one KPI is MQLs, you know, we have to, marketing has to provide MQLs to sales. Sales has to provide a certain number of clients to operations. Operations then has to fulfill and provide contribution dollars over to admin. You follow me that flow, each one has one number. But what are the critical activities that creates that number? Like the, the, the sum result, if we, again, going back to our gym example, if we're going to get sexy, you don't go and do any one particular thing on a particular day to do that. It's about the sum of a given activity. So for example, in marketing, is it number of speaking gigs booked? Is it number of phone calls made to get speaking gigs booked? Because we know speaking gigs leads to the most MQLs. You follow me? And then in sales, what's the activity that then turns as many of opportunities as possible into? Is it number of outbound calls per week? Is it, so what's, what's the activity? And so for me, it would be a flow chart of how those things flow. So that way, as an executive, you could look at that and go, okay, there's a bottleneck right there. Our flow is stifled. Our flow is stopped. Gotcha. We, have a, we have a pinch in the pipe, so to speak. And so now this is where the holdup is in that flow. So then you can dig into that and say, okay, what is causing a, a pinch in that flow? And it's either going to be something inside or the previous, the previous feeders. Does that make sense? So for me, that view helps an executive uh, not get bogged down in the weeds and also will allow the uh, executive team to do what they need to do to just make that flow happen. Uh, so that's, that's the one dashboard that I would suggest okay. to, to everyone and to executives is start looking at the flow of your business. Start looking at the flow of your client's business if you're able to impact that and understand the critical business activities that help create flow. Because if you can create a rhythm of those activities, then some weeks it'll be good, some weeks it'll be bad but the net result will be positive because you're concentrating on the critical activities and you're cranking those every week. You're just cranking those and cranking those and cranking those. And that will net out to the kind of result you're after. Silly question for you. Is data important in, in the business and looking at the data to make decisions? Is, would you say that's uh, how important is that? To a degree. I think, I think in, in many ways, organizations get caught up in too much data, mm -hmm. right? I think organizations complicate things. Even big organizations uh, at, a, at a high level, at a management level, don't need a ton of data. They need to understand, you know, what are the critical activities? What is our economic engine? You know, our profit per whatever their economic, and they need to be just looking at a few things and being very honest about whether those things are working or not. I, I, people don't lack data. Organizations don't lack data. We have enough data. People lack focus and uh, discipline to make decisions. That's the number one problem is people, people bury their head in the sand. We don't, have a, data, sure. we don't have a data problem. We have a, a leadership problem uh, because the data is there. Spreadsheets are a great excuse to not get to work because yeah. it feels like work to do analysis. I tell my clients uh, it's all about data plus gut instinct. That's how you make good decisions. And you have to use your experience, ideally your unique competitively important experience plus the data if you have only one of these you're either hoping and praying or you're totally making mechanical decisions that don't incorporate your own actual experience but yeah i say pay attention to a few numbers i was telling Daniel the other week that one of my big numbers is how many sales calls am i on a week 
I don't care as much about how many of them convert because I know my average. I care about how many sales calls a week. And then I look in the future and I say, okay, three weeks from now I have this many sales calls. Is that within bounds? Like you're saying, Frank, is it within bounds? If it's not within bounds, change my activity. I still have time to go change that because I need to have X many per week to meet my goals. Yeah, I mean, just again, going back to like the, the physical fitness example, like you don't need the most perfect routine on the planet, but if you do a decent routine consistently over time, you're going to win out because the thing that people... Many people have yet to figure out in business. It's so simple. It's about consistency in the critical activities. It's just it's it's a consistency ball game. Showing up every day, and and getting the reps in. And not not binging. Yeah, exactly. Binging is the I used to have somebody's were talking about working out, and one guy saying, "Yeah, I, I binge exercise," and I thought that's painfully real. Where I'll say, "Oh yeah, now I'm going to get strong. I'm going to go do my running. I'm going to go lift weights. I'm going to do it." And then two weeks later. I'm not doing it quite as often because I was binging, which is, it's exciting. Whereas actually every single week saying, how many sales calls will I have next week? Is that within bounds? Who am I going to talk to to get them on the counter? That's not exciting. Winning is exciting, the long-term effect of that. But in the short term, binging is way more exciting because it's new and fun and I want to go do new stuff because I'm a human. Well, gentlemen, we're at the top of the hour. So I want to thank you both for your time. Now, Brian, uh, for anyone who's viewing this and they want to learn more about your agency and and get a hold of you, how might they do so? To get a hold of me, go to redbeardconsulting.com. There's a little bit about what I do there, and there's a link to go become one of those sales calls. (laughs) All right. And Frank, for people that want to learn more about your agency, uh, how would they go about getting a a hold of your agency or, or learning more about what you guys offer? Yeah, just go to our website, digitopia.agency. Go there, it'll tell you all about, uh, like most websites, what we do. And if you want to connect with us, there's ways to do that there. You could also just shoot me an email, uh, fcowell, F-C-O-W-E-L-L, at digitopia.agency. More than happy to field emails. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, I know your time is very valuable. Uh, I want to thank you for taking your time out to share the knowledge that both of you have, have extolled uh, for the viewers so thank you so much, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone got value from it. So thank you. Daniel, thanks for having us. Absolutely.